Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. You know, at the end of the day, behaviour is just non-verbal communication. A lot of the time when I get asked to, to see people who are so-called having behaviour challenges or, or BPSD, really it's just communication of distress. They're behaving really normally in a very abnormal situation. Hi, it's Hilton Copy here and welcome back to Dementia in Practice. It's the podcast made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. As always, my friends and colleagues from Dementia Training Australia, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly are joining me. And I wanted to begin by asking you both a question. What's one little thing you try to include in your day to fill your well-being cup? Oh, such a Hilton question. I, I try and get in some exercise every day, but I'm loving Wordle. Is that tragic? I don't think it's tragic at all, Marita. Wordle is a great quick word game that can be done online in, well, in a little time or a longer time, depending on how tricky the word is. I'm, I'm loving Wordle as well. What about you, Steph? What are your well-being go-to activities? It isn't Wordle, <laughs> but um, I, I like to fill my <laughs> fill my actual cup with a cup of coffee. And I think if I don't have a cup of coffee a day, then my day isn't complete. And like Marita, I, I live for um, exercise. So I always try and do something physical during the day, um, usually one of my gym classes. What about you, Hilton? Well, me, exercise also. Um, but I did make the decision a few months ago or perhaps even last year to not look at the computer which also means not looking at the news or listening to the news until I've had my exercise and breakfast and that cup of coffee which is also really important for me too uh, and that's been great not looking at the news until at least I've eaten and become caffeinated. So the reason why I wanted to ask those questions is because the episode today is around this concept of well-being and in particular how important this is for people with dementia. And Steph, you've spoken to someone who's been doing work in this field and has developed this concept called a well-being directive. Yes, I, I spoke to Jason Burton, who's a dementia consultant based in Western Australia, and he has worked for, I think, over 20 years trying to help people when they might be transitioning into residential aged care facilities and also help residential aged care facilities understand the nature of the people that are living within their uh, environments and how to improve the quality of care that people get so it's really interesting to hear some of his perspectives. We don't do a lot of capturing of what's really important to people, what enhances people's well-being and what they would like to see down the track when they're no longer able to necessarily tell us those things. And so I kind of stumbled across a, a concept of, that I created called Wellbeing Directives, which is, you know, in a similar way that we do advanced healthcare directives, where we tend to focus on our medical wishes and what we'd like um, from medical intervention um, as we get towards end of life. 
And really, I was thinking if I was diagnosed with dementia and having talked to many people who had just been diagnosed, you know, trying to capture and getting them to capture what's really important to them. What are the things that are most meaningful? What are the things that they really would like to see continue or the things that they'd really like to continue to be able to do for as long as possible? And really just capturing that so that when we get to the point where somebody enters residential care, the care staff have a really good picture of how to set up a person's day, how to interact, how to make sure different engagement opportunities take place with that person so that that emotional well-being is maintained. Because to be honest, most of what I see in terms of so-called BPSD or, or change behavior is really distress. It's really distress because they're in a state of ill-being a lot of the time. And so I do think if we could actually capture whilst the person's still able to, to tell us and to be able to write down or, or in some other way capture what's what's really important to them from a sense of well-being point of view, then that could become a really, really useful tool in our care planning when somebody has more advanced dementia and, and may not be able to tell us that. Mm. So it could be things, simple things, for example, if somebody normally would have a shower at the end of the day that's a routine that they'd been used to that that was something that prepared you know because that's something that maybe people use to wind down at the end of the day you know as part of their sleep hygiene if you like but then in a in a traditional residential home most people are washed and dressed in the morning not showered in the evening so that might be an example of something that somebody might write down yeah, so routines routines are really important to us, I and mean, it's something we often don't think about. It, it's almost become subconscious in our life patterns, in, is our routines. But if you actually stopped and, and really thought about how your day pans out and, and what's a regular routine, you'd actually find there's quite a lot of stuff that you do that actually is 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 really routine. Um, and again, what we know is that once you start to get out of that routine, things start to feel uncomfortable. And whilst you might be able to rationalise all of that out if you don't have cognitive impairment. If you, if you have dementia, then the ability to rationalize why you have this feeling of uncomfortableness is, is really difficult. And so that then starts to uh, translate into anxiety or into a sense that something's not right and I need to leave this place because something just doesn't feel right. So those sense of routines are one area for sure that well-being is really based on. Um, but then there's other areas as well. There's things like meaning, you know, and, and again, what do we find meaningful in our lives? And we all have very individualized approaches to that. And what would happen if I was no longer able to self-actualize that meaningful activity or that meaningful, purposeful thing that I do? And if nobody knew that, then what would that do to me? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole range of stuff. Music. Music's a great one. We've had a lot of research in recent years about the impact that music can have on the brain and on well-being for people living with dementia. But what we know from the research is that the bigger the impact if the, mean, if the music is meaningful. Mm -hmm. So does somebody know what your top 20 songs are? <laughs> you know, and it's something as simple as like as that. And and you know, have, is there a meaningful playlist that if I'm no longer able to tell somebody the music that really stimulates me or or somehow touches me, um, will they know that? And if they don't, then there's an opportunity missed to enhance my well-being. So it's really about capturing all these little nuances in our life that actually make up the really important things in our life. When is the best time to start talking about well-being directives? Dementia is such an individual condition that 
it's really got to be based around when you think the person is open to the conversation. So it's not kind of six months in or after three months. Because each of us deals with the diagnosis very differently. Some people go into denial and it takes them quite a long time before they get out of that and are willing to be open in discussion. Um, Whereas some people want to be really proactive and they kind of like, tell me what I can do. What can I do to actually help with this? Um, So it's really about being timely and and really approaching it in a positive uh, planning way. It's been my experience. So if I sit down with somebody and say, okay, there are going to be changes ahead. And the more that we can plan for those changes now, the easier and the better the journey will be for you and for your loved ones. Because again, I think there's kind of a a more acceptance of advanced health directives and care planning these days. So it's almost like find the the start of the conversation with something somebody's comfortable with and then move into the more challenging ones. I'll often, you know, start with that and say, okay, have you got your guardianship in place? Have you got an enduring power of attorney in place? And sort of talk about that sort of practical stuff. And then I'll go to, okay, let's let's talk about a, a little bit about the planning for you. And, you know, in terms of reablement and rehabilitation, what sort of things are really important to you and what goals would you like to set that we can look at together to work on? And then I'll go into well-being and I'll, I'll talk about, okay, so if you weren't able to tell anybody what's really important to you, how are you going to capture that? How are you going to let people know? Because you don't want to lose that. And so it's really a gentle discussion into, into those things framed in a planning. You know, you might not need this for years, but the more you think about it now and the more you get in place now, the better things will be into the future. So, Steph, I'm so grateful for you finding Jason for us. It was really quite some quite new concepts. So what were the highlights of that part of the interview for you so far? Yeah, there was so much in there, wasn't there, that I, we probably don't think about. And I've reflected a lot on this interview since since doing it. And even for myself, routine is so important. And I know, you know, when it's the school holidays and the kids are not at school, everything kind of gets into a disarray. And towards the end of the school holidays, I'm craving that routine again. So imagine if you can't make sense of what's going on around you, but your routine is all upside down, how distressing that would be. And I love the way that he describes, you know, trying to alleviate people's distress and really thinking about the way that people are behaving and the way that people are reacting to their environment is a measure of distress and then giving us some really useful tools that we can actually put in place to help alleviate that was really powerful and the thing I love is the music because you know I think everybody knows when they hear a song that makes them feel good how it can just take you back to you know I was listening the other day to a song that that was played at my wedding and it just took me instantly back to that time and made me feel happy so to be able to you know, ask somebody, what are your top 20 songs? What's, what has meaning for you? And, and put that into a playlist so that when somebody is experiencing something that is distressing, you can actually touch them with music and, and you know, make them feel reassured and comforted by that, or maybe even happy about thinking about something positive. So I, I found some really good practical things from that, from that little interview there. I can see some amazing value in having a well-being directive a written well-being directive because we know so often what happens for patients when they enter residential aged care facilities it's almost like they're starting out again at 
at ground zero. You know, they're often a new patient to a new facility with a new doctor, with new staff. And as we say, if they've got sort of no um, sense of their usual routine or processes or comforts or joys, you know, it must be really difficult for everyone, mostly the person with dementia, but also the people trying to care for that person because they don't know. So if you could hand someone over with a well-being directive that they've nutted out themselves, and I, to me, I think it would be useful to start doing that with people before they have any diagnosis. So as people are aging, start to ask them, you know, what other things that are important to you? What other things that are meaningful for you? And, and sort of start keeping a little dossier of those things so that if or when the time comes, you know, you've kind of got this list of things that are important to the person. And I can imagine as a GP, I know we've got so much time to do all these sort of things, but uh, talk about um, filling up the wellbeing cup. If if I have an opportunity to talk with my patients about what gives their life meaning and purpose, I imagine that would make my day go so much better than spending all the time talking about what's causing them pain and suffering. So if there was any way that we could build that into our practice, I think it would make uh, our job more enjoyable and rewarding, really, to, to find out those sort of things about our patients. Mm. Marita, both you and I had parents die from dementia. And I wonder if I can ask you to reflect on the experience for your father, if that's okay. And uh, in particular, if he'd had a well-being directive, how might that have made things different for him? Yeah, it's interesting now reflecting back on that and I can say, geez, if only we'd known and we could have put something together like that. I think Dad was really lucky because when he went into care, it was a fairly small facility and it was a dementia-specific unit and, in fact, it was a great unit, you know, it had all those things in the environment that we've talked about in our podcast, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but going back now, I can see that all the things that they had done to make life really the best for the people who were who were there. And I suppose dad was a doctor and, and even in a nursing home that seems to command respect from people. So they, one of the things dad did all the time was he just walked and walked and walked and the nurses took him every day on their drug rounds and he could walk with them and, and he really enjoyed that. So it gave him meaning most days where he could get up and, and do what was really familiar to him. The other thing I would want to say with that as well is there are some things that for dad really changed. So he was a germ phobe and he would never eat out at anyone's houses or he'd only go to, you know, very um, uh, high class restaurants because he figured their hygiene was better there than they would be at perhaps a cafe or a McDonald's. And in the nursing home, he ate everything, which really shocked us. We thought that we would have to be bringing in his food. So, you know, sometimes things are different for people as well. It's not always what they've loved or known. Why don't we hear a bit more of your conversation with Jason now, Steph? I often say to people living with dementia, when, you, when you're developing these, these well-being directives, think about not just what it is, but the detail of it. You know, and by that I mean um, 
Let me give you an example. So I could say, oh, it's really important for me that I have a cup of coffee in the morning. Okay. Now that's great. But if it's a tea trolley that comes around with a cup of instant coffee in a plastic mug, that's Which for not... me would be unacceptable. <laughs> exactly. Same here. So that's not what's going to enhance my well-being. What's going to enhance my well-being is a really nice cup of cappuccino made with almond milk served in a proper big ceramic mug, ideally sat in the garden if I could be while I'm having it. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's not just about the occasion, but it's about the detail often. And it's the detail that often makes things meaningful to us and therefore enhances our well-being. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing happens with advanced care directives as well. I mean, they get filled in um, in a quite superfluous way sometimes. And actually, it's about the detail that you write in there. Until you start thinking about it, you don't realise all of that structure around your day that isn't, you know, like my day wouldn't be complete if I didn't have a cup of tea first thing in the morning. Yeah. And, and it's really surprising. You know, we, we kind of laugh and we go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, almost as if that doesn't really matter too much. But I tell you yeah. what, when it when it's not there anymore and when yeah. not only that's not there, but everything else isn't there either, mm. then that's when we see people in great distress. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, behavior is just nonverbal communication. And so mm. a lot of the time when I get asked to, to, to see people who are so-called having behavior challenges or, or BPSD, um, really it's just communication of distress. And when you look at their life, they're behaving really normally in a very abnormal situation where a lot of this stuff has been removed. And I think if any of us had this stuff removed, we would, we would, we would struggle and we would suffer and we would communicate that we were suffering. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to even, you know, like the smell of your home or the familiar people that are in your home, the familiar voices and things like that. So if that's all taken away, as well as the objects that you had around you, um, as you know, all of that, there's so much more to just the daily routine, I guess, is what you're saying as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There, there absolutely is. And I always say, you know, a lot of the time I, I walk into residential care facilities and I see people and, and the first thing they say to me is I want to go home. Mm. Okay. And, and I, I, I say to the staff and I say to the families, home is a feeling, it's not a place. And, and so when people say to me, I want to go home, they're really telling me something. And it's often they're telling me this place that I'm in has no feeling of home. And by that, I mean familiarity, familiarity in routine, familiarity in people, familiarity in objects, um, things that are meaningful that are happening or that I can actually do, all of that stuff. Um, is missing. And that's why people stand at the door banging and saying they want to go home. Mm. So the, the big challenge for us in, in, in uh, residential care is to, is to somehow find ways to understand what that means for a person and then actually start to put that in place for the person. And that's actually a major culture shift. And that's mm. why it's hard work and it takes so long. Um, mm. But I always say start, start simple. And, and again, for, you know, if you're a GP and you're, you're working with somebody living with dementia, start simple. And I always say, write down the three most meaningful things to you and start there, because sometimes it can be hard to get started with this stuff. I think that's one of the challenges I've certainly had when I've had that exact same situation. Well, a lady who wants her parents to come and pick her up, it must be time for her to go home. And I've tried to get them, get everybody engaged in thinking about what's meaningful. What does this person enjoy doing? How can we get up, set up a routine um, for her so that she feels more relaxed and almost a bit, a bit of mindfulness in that, you know, associating that 
that happy activity with um, feeling calm and relaxed and comfortable. But it, it takes a lot of motivation from everybody involved in that person's care to get on board with that. And that's both the family and the care staff and the person themselves, you know, the person themselves as well to really take that forwards, I think. And it can be, it can be quite a difficult task where I've certainly found it a bit challenging. Yeah, it is because we're asking people to change cultures and that's, you know, I think um, we're not used to necessarily doing that, particularly in residential care. Um, And so we're actually used to being quite institutional still. You know, and whilst we, we've kind of beautified and made the buildings look better, really when you, you sort of strip away that veneer, we're still quite institutional. And so we follow institutional practices. And if there's one thing institutions struggle with, it's individuality. And so, yeah. you know, as soon as somebody doesn't fit into the routines or, or the environment or the way we do things, um, and they start to communicate that distress that they're feeling because they don't fit, then it becomes quite challenging for us because we're not used to then changing everything that we do or the way that we think in order to to accommodate their needs you know and really again you know it's the essence of person-centered care as a philosophy about an acceptance that there is individuality in everybody on the dementia journey and that we have to be very individualized in our approach but you know, our systems and our environments and our staffing and our training and all sorts of things tend to lean towards institutional care rather than individualized care. And I know as a general practitioner, we often get called in for consults to kind of assist with managing some of the behaviors that that you're talking about. And traditionally, that's been with the use of um, medications in the past. But now there's a real move away from that and trying to identify what the triggers might be. Um, I wonder whether you have actually had much to do with the GPs that are looking after the people living in, you know, is there much kind of multidisciplinary care or kind of a multidisciplinary action in that in that respect or is the GP still kind of called in just for the medication side of things it's very varied I'd have to say across different um, environments and different communities Um, so I'm working quite closely with GPs in some communities and not at all within others and it's kind of a shame because I I do find that where we can work together um, and we can look at because again you know there's, there's lots of triggers and there's lots of things that could be going on for a person and some of it's physical and some of it's medical and clinical and a lot of it's social. And so I like to work with the GP where possible to look at, um, because often by the time I get, I, I meet somebody, they usually have already gone through that initial stuff. And so they're usually already on respiridone or, or something else. And so mm. part of trying to, I guess, reduce the use of those sorts of um, chemical responses is working with the GP to look at, well, what else can we put in place? What else might be triggering this? What else can we find you know, have we done have we done adequate pain management? Have we looked at delirium? Have we looked at infections? Are there any blood disorders we're not picking up on? Um, what's the effect of the risperidone or the other, whatever medications being given? Is it actually a positive effect or is it actually causing more problems, which is often the case? Um, and then how how do we go about actually reducing it? getting the person off it, but helping the team with that as well, because they've been put on it for a reason. And if we don't address the reason, just taking them off the drug isn't going to help because the team will be back ringing the GP again saying, oh, Mrs. So-and-so is doing this and we really need you to come and look at her. So it, it, the multidisciplinary approach is definitely better. And, and where I can work with the GPs, we, we do find we have much better outcomes. 
Are there any other things that you would suggest that GPs learn about? I'm, I'm sure that many GPs don't really know what meaningful activity means. Not that they don't do meaningful activity themselves, but the concept of meaningful activity. Do you have a way of explaining what meaningful activity is? It's a hard thing because, again, people like to have a bit of a cookie cutter approach and um, and you kind of go, this is meaningful, this isn't meaningful. But of course, the challenge in it and why it is so difficult to grasp is it's individual. And so what's meaningful for me may not be meaningful for you at all. We spend a lot of time in aged care entertaining people passively and not a lot of time in meaningful engagement. And so, and again, because the environments are generally not set up well for it. And so the more that we can uh, do that, the, the more important it is. And I guess from a GP's perspective, what's really important is, you know, if you're getting called in to see somebody and the staff are saying, we need to get them on medication because they're doing this, this, and this, always ask the question, you know, what's going on for this person? What's happening in their life? Do they have any meaning in their life? Because that's the stuff that I find once you start to be able to address that, the distress minimizes, the communication of behavior through distress minimizes, and therefore you're you're solving the problem without actually managing the behavior. And I think, you know, we, we go straight to the managing behavior at the end, um, mm. rather than looking at, at what are those triggers and those distresses and what's missing in people's lives. When I talk to people, and again, I guess this comes back to the, the purpose of the podcast around GPs having discussions with family and the person with dementia about residential care. Um, and one of the things that I hear the most from people living with dementia is when I say to them, what is it that you fear about moving into a residential care home? Because we all have these fears about it, you know, and I've heard people say, I'd rather die than move into residential care. You know, mm. it's that loss of autonomy. It's a loss of connection with community and family or friends. And it's uh, boredom. Those are the three yeah. things that come out every time I have the conversation. Th- these are the things that people really struggle with because they know that in a residential care home, those needs generally are not met very well. And, you know, I think that's a, a sad reflection on, you know, our care of where we've got to so far. And look, we've come a long, long way. Don't get me wrong. Um, I've been in dementia practice for 30 years and we've come a long, long way in that time in improving our, our care environments and our practice. But the, these fundamental things people are still really struggling with. Like always, I was struck by so many things that Jason had to say uh, during that interview. And Marita, the the first uh, statement that he said was sort of along the lines of uh, behaviour is just nonverbal communication. Mm. Um, I wonder what your thoughts were when you heard Jason say Mm. that. I mean, he's so insightful. I just thought that uh, when I refer my patients to a nursing home, I just wanted Jason to be there for me. You know, he's got such a good grasp, doesn't he? And and we grapple so much with behaviours. And it's right. It, it is a form of nonverbal communication. Um, and it's really trying to nut out, you know, what that communication is about. And, and it's really lovely hearing Jason talk about it, but it's a really hard thing to do as a GP. And I think his discussions around you know, being person-centred and individualised, but our systems aren't set up for individuals. They're set up for systems. So there's so much there to learn from how 
really, we really need to reorganize the system. And whether that's our job um, or not, it, it's it's very difficult. Thank goodness there are people like Jason around who can do some of this. And and I think he spoke about uh, communities. I think he was talking about residential aged care facilities, but he spoke of them as communities. And one of the uh, things that got me thinking when he said that was that in a community, everyone does their bit. So as a GP, we've got our role, but there are so many other people who can help with things like this. Mm. I think one of the other things that I would take from what he said is about perhaps not being reactive, but being proactive. You know, all too often it will be that we're called to, you know, something's happened and we need to work out what's going on as a reaction to something else, you know, and then maybe that's when the chemical restraints are started as a reaction to, you know, the distress that somebody's feeling. Whereas if you take on board what he says about the well-being directives and the planning that should go into transitioning somebody moving into a residential care facility, then perhaps um, you're more proactive about the way that you look after people and being more person-centered for that person may reduce the reactive nature of things that happen further down the track. And so maybe that's the change that, that needs to happen in our thinking yeah, it was clear from what, to me, what Jason was saying is that the behaviour is the end product of lack of all that planning that you're talking about, Steph. Mm-hmm. And I found it so interesting that he talked about boredom. I don't think I'd really thought about it. I had kind of imagined when I might be in a residential facility, I probably wouldn't find some of the activities that I see going on as being stimulating for me. I had thought about that, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of why somebody might be exhibiting some distress is because there's not enough meaningful engagement in activity for that individual. And again, it comes back to trying to pigeonhole people into a group thing rather than having enough staff or enough thought going into the activity so that they are more personalised. And of course, not everybody's going to want to do bingo or whatever it is or a quiz or, you know, you know, music. So that really made sense to me. And, and certainly that's going to make me think harder about how I can make changes in the future. So one of the other things that struck me in the words that Jason used was the phrase along the lines of home is a feeling, not a place. I, I was just so struck by that. And Marita, there's been so much talk lately about trying to make residential aged care better for people who are living there. And I guess a lot of a lot of that is about both this combination of place and feeling Uh, and some of it comes down to funding and resources I just wonder what your thoughts were about that Hmm. you know I know we often talk about what it was like for for us as uh, having family members and I just forever feel so grateful that the facility my dad was in was the one he was in and I often find as a GP going into residential aged care facilities, there just seems to be so many barriers to creating that feeling that Jason's talking about. They often do feel more like places and that are there for the system, not for the individual, not taking into account those individual needs. And, you know, it's not 
due to lack of care for the people who are working there. Most people, I believe, are there because they really care for the residents. But we've just got such a long way to go. And I'm, I just think it's great that we've been able to listen to Jason and get a sense of what is possible. And I guess for me, and I suppose for all of us at the age we are who may be facing those times where we're, we're going to a residential aged care facility, you know, maybe it's time we really have to start advocating for residential aged care facilities to start feeling like home. It's very hard. And uh, I was thinking about uh, my top song on my top 20, which is ironically or not Stairway to Heaven. So uh, find me a place that's going to be like heaven when I can no longer um, care for myself would be really good. Um, Steph, I know you work a lot with um, with people with dementia. And I was just wondering when you're speaking with them and their families about making this transition into residential aged care, what sort of factors do you suggest they look at when going around visiting residential aged care facilities? I think you've really got to think about, you know, what's the environment like? How how many people might be living in that environment? And are there sort of safe and quiet spaces that you can go to as well as outdoor spaces that you can utilise? Drawing on what Jason said about activities, so how personalised can the act- activities be how clinical is the environment because it can be quite difficult as marita said to make some of these places feel like home but how much do the homes themselves want to take that step to make to make things person centered and incorporate some of that philosophy into how they they support people who are living within their care and i guess other things about making sure that They have some dementia-friendly environment principles and and have also taught their their staff about how to manage people um, who are living with dementia, which you'd hope that most homes would do nowadays. But again, I think it's questions that that as a family you can ask, um, which might help to reassure you. But as with, I don't know, when I go and buy a house, not that I've bought that many, but all the houses that I've bought in my time, when I go into that place, I get a, I get a feeling and maybe it's a, a similar sort of thing. You would get a feeling for how, how comfortable that environment's going to be and hopefully that would help guide you. Mm, I think that's some really good tips there, Steph. Yeah, and just following up on those tips, Steph, my uncle's in a residential aged care facility. He's got uh, vascular dementia. And one of the really nice things about going to visit him is that it's the same staff every time I go and the staff know him and they're getting to know me. And so that continuity of care that comes from having the same people there as much as possible, I think must really make a difference. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to ask about as well, you know, what the staff turnover is like. And yeah, getting back to that training, like you would want to know that that staff have been through some kind of uh, education training with regards to dementia, because we know in our field as GPs that, and that's why we're doing what we're doing, is because very few GPs have had any formal education when it comes to um, caring for people living with dementia. 
Speaking of formal education in the field of dementia, in the next episode of Dementia in Practice, I'll be speaking with a clinical neuropsychologist who's got specific training in both dementia and also particularly about the importance of sleep and the positive impacts that sleep can have on caring for people living with dementia. So in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, DTA dot com dot au slash gp or follow dementia training australia on facebook or at dementia train au on twitter and don't forget to tell others about this podcast see you next time if you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia dementia australia has some great resources the National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.